And we finally come to this place where we're now addressing the final church of the seven churches of this reclaimed series that we've been going through together. In the first few chapters of Revelation, we've learned just how important and how essential an apocalypse, a revelation of Jesus Christ is to our faith, to the vitality of our faith, to the vitality of our following after Jesus Christ and experiencing him despite what happens around us. You see, a revelation of Jesus Christ, it restores a proper perspective that we need to have when we get caught up with all the busyness of this life. When we get caught up with all the things that are happening in this world, when we get even caught up with some of the disappointments and the frustrations that we inevitably face as we live our life. See, a revelation of Jesus Christ, it restores that proper perspective so that even though we meet those challenges or we spiral away from where we, where we should be focused on, it realigns us and it recommits us to what we need to do to bring joy and life back and into why we are living. You know, by nature, personally for me, I am pretty competitive. And so there are a lot of times where I, I would admit I can't control my disappointment and I can't control my frustration, especially with games that I'm playing or watching when I see my children playing certain games. And just this past weekend, um, the past three days, my, my son, he had a baseball tournament. And our boys were intentionally put in, into a tournament that was one level higher than they were. And I think the coach's intention behind that is he wanted our, our boys to really move up in their game and to realize, hey, there's a greater competition out there that we need to strive for, we need to get better at, and to really challenge them in the way that they play and their mental game as well. In the very first game that we played, it literally was error after error after error. And you could just tell by the body language of everyone that was on the field that they looked like a team that wasn't committed to the end result anymore. And at the overall end of the game, although we lost, it really was a winnable game. We did lose by a margin, but still, if we maintained our composure, it was a very winnable game. And as a result of that, as one of the parents there and, you know, our, our parents getting frustrated watching our boys uh, play in this kind of manner, uh, inside, I was so frustrated. Inside, I was so upset with the team, but I can't lash out. I was just, like, keeping it outside, inside. And we still had two more games to play for this tournament. But you know what happens when you hold in steam? It always finds a different outlet to find itself, find a way to release itself. And while I was driving, I was driving my son in between the games. Uh, we were going uh, to just take a break, uh, grab a bite to eat. Uh, I was really short-tempered on the road. 
Uh, there were drivers that were cutting in um, into my lane without signaling and just causing me to brake hard. And it, it, it was so frustrating that at, at some point I began to martyr, um, mutter and, and say, why is that person doing that? I became angry. And then my son, he looked at me and he finally asked me, dad, why are you so angry? In, in response to that, automatically, I couldn't comprehend why my son would ask me that because I would say, did you not see what that guy just did? Did you not see how he just cut, off, uh, cut us off and I had to break so suddenly and all this kind of stuff? But what he was really referring to is, yes, we saw that, but does what happened to you at that moment, does that fit or is that in the response that you gave, does that kind of fit the situation? And I realized that the kind of anger or the kind of like frustration that I was exhibiting, yes, it was way beyond what this situation required. You see, I asked myself at that moment as I wanted to give the excuse to my son, no, it's that person's fault. That person is making me angry. I realized there was something else brewing in my heart. And it was this baseball tournament. Right? It was that first game. And I began to question my own heart and to think, man, this is really just a baseball tournament. In the grand scheme of life, it means very little. But why am I allowing it to get to me so much that it throws off my perspective on other things that I'm facing in this life? Yes, I think baseball tournaments and, and doing our best is important and to be challenged by it, but it shouldn't dictate what happens at that tournament. It shouldn't dictate how I feel about the future of my life or how I feel about the quality of my life. This is not a life and death kind of situation where it should just suck the joy out of how I experience every other thing that I have in life. I want to ask you guys, don't we have those kind of moments where we get lost in a certain frustration? We get lost in a certain desire to see something that is wronged, righted, where our responses, we begin to sulk. We get angry. We feel betrayed. We feel used. We feel that there's injustice that was done. And then our response to these things or our response to other um, consequences and other frustrations that we, we experience in life, it becomes beyond what that situation requires. And we find ourselves just grieving in that. We find ourselves just frustrated with stewing in it. And it throws our perspective off. We are going to get right into God's Word together. If you have your Bibles, please open it with me to Revelation chapter 3, verse uh, 14 to 22. So Revelation chapter 3, we're going to begin at verse 14. We're going to go to 22. It reads this. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. 
You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and solve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for blessing us with this passage. Thank you, Father, for the series that we're able to go through together. And I ask today, just as you've said each time to each of the seven churches, may we have ears to hear and eyes that are opened to who you are, what you are saying, and how we are called to follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to ask Pastor Jen at this time to share an image on screen. And as she shares this image on screen, uh, I'm going to talk about it a little bit. I'm sure some of you guys at some point in your life have seen this image before. And this painting, it actually comes from Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, where it says, Behold, I knock at the door, and anyone who hears it and opens the door, I will go in and eat with that person and that person with me. You know, we all have difficult moments. We all have those moments that throw us off our game. We all have the moments that really are our pet peeve or things that really trigger us in a certain way. And it throws our mental game, our focus, our perspective. It throws it into a spiral where we find ourselves in this kind of moment that we can't get out of. We find ourselves in this kind of space that we begin to grumble and we notice that how discouraged we feel or how our whole life becomes enwrapped with that or entangled with that one issue. I want you to have this, Im um, this image in mind because this image of Jesus knocking on our doors, you'll notice he was speaking to the church in Laodicea. In other words, other people, when they see this painting or the, when they see this picture, their automatic thought is always, oh yeah, Jesus is knocking on people's hearts of people's, uh, doors of people's hearts. And their assumption is that it's people who don't know Christ. They see it more as an, even, uh, as an evangelistic kind of picture where they find like Jesus is knocking on people's hearts who don't know him so that they will invite him to be their personal Savior and Lord. But what you notice here in this passage where it comes from is he was actually addressing the church, the church who has already been in a relationship with Jesus Christ, the church who has already been journeying with him. And it's that church where Jesus finds himself on the outside. It's that church that has pushed him out and he's knocking to get back in. 
In the same way, when we look at our own life, you can think of those challenging moments when we spiral or when we get really discouraged about certain things that don't change or things that really peeve us off, right? And, and we begin to cycle in in that discontentment. Picture Jesus being pushed out because our perspective becomes reoriented by those circumstances. Just like me at my son's baseball game, my whole view of life becomes very negative. And in those moments, I push Jesus out. I push his perspective out. And those are the moments where God comes knocking again. And he says, no, I belong in your heart. Not that challenging experience. Not reorienting uh, your life based on this difficulty that you are going through. Or something that really gets you upset. He knocks and he says, I'm the one that deserves the center place in that life. And not that thing. Because that will spiral you out of control. That will lead you someplace that you don't want to go. You want me to be directing your focus. You see, if we're not careful, it's so easy with all the challenges that we face in life all the difficulties that we go through, it's so easy that we become Christians who live our Christian life with Christ on the outside. Where we declare Him to be our Savior and our Lord. Yet what occupies a primary space in our life is some other issue, is some other frustration, is some other discontentment. And Jesus says, I need to be in that space. Thanks for sharing that slide, uh, Pastor Jen. So in this passage, he then talks about lukewarm Christians. This is how Christians become lukewarm, is that we get wrapped up with all, or we get entangled with all of these different issues that are happening, and we push Jesus on the outside, and as we do so, our faith becomes lukewarm. This, why is this so important? Look at verse 15 to 16. It says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. What Jesus is mentioning here is the reason why they're um, lukewarm is because they have put Christ on the outside. In fact, when you look at the NIV, the NIV uses the word spit out. Because you are lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth out of my mouth but the NIV is actually using a, a tamer word a more polite saying than the actual harshness of the word that's used in the Greek the better word or a more accurate translation of the Greek word spit out should be vomit so it actually should read I vomit you out of my mouth why is Jesus using such extreme language towards the Laodiceans? Where he says, you are neither hot nor cold, you are lukewarm, so I vomit you. In other words, he's saying, the, the life that you live, the lukewarmness of your faith, he says it's nauseating. It causes gag reflexes where I want to vomit that out of my mouth. We can understand the extreme, the, the extremeness of this language by just thinking about our own dissatisfaction, those pet peeves that we just mentioned, 
those hardships that we go through that really throw us off and it just gets us white-knuckled angry with just life. And sometimes it makes our whole life spiral in that direction where we look at everything in that kind of way. How nauseating that situation is. How discouraging it can become to us. You see, this is what Jesus is referring to when he says, when our faith becomes lukewarm, when it becomes neither hot nor cold, he looks at us and he says, he's nauseated. Why? Not because of us. Not because he's saying that you are nauseating people. He's nauseated because he knows how lukewarm a warmness can ruin us. He knows how devastating lukewarmness can be to any follower of Jesus Christ. It can suck joy out of a person's faith living. It can disorient and move their perspective into thinking that they are trying so hard to live a Christian life, but it's meaningless behind it. It's what Paul describes as, it's in vain. And when Jesus sees his followers living a Christian life that's supposed to be joy-filling, that's supposed to be spirit-powered, yet what they're living instead is this like lukewarmness, this nothingness, this I'm not sensing anything in my life. And it's just a part of my tradition. It nauseates him because he knows it does nothing for us. It saps us of any joy. See, sometimes when we live a lukewarm type of faith, our perspective, as much as we may think it's led by Christ, it's influenced more by these challenges. And it begins to misguide us. It begins to weasel its way into us that we feel like the way that we're living is right. But for some reason, our relationship with God doesn't feel like it's being connected. For Jesus, he's never wrong. He always wants to guide us in the right way. And as much as our frustrations misguide us, Apart from Christ, what Jesus wants us to do as he knocks on our hearts is to reorient us again. And he says, your life must be lived with me at the center. Allow me to come back in. So why does Jesus use the term lukewarm? Why does he use the term hot and cold water to the Laodiceans? Well, when you look at the Laodiceans and the, the city of Laodicea, what we notice is that Laodicea lacked a natural water source. And because of that, they had to develop an aqueduct system to ship water in from other water sources. In fact, the water sources were so far off that when they finally got to the city of Laodicea, the water became lukewarm. It would have come from a refreshing site somewhere else, but by the time it came into Laodicea, it wasn't refreshing anymore. It was lukewarm. In fact, six miles away, there was another city called Herapolis. And at Herapolis, it was famous for its hot springs, its bubbling hot springs. And so as Laodiceans saw that, they created an aqueduct system that linked all the way six miles to Heriopolis, and there they shipped in this bubbling spring water. 
But what they found again is by the time that that hot spring water came into their city, it was lukewarm. It was nauseating. All you got was the smell and no benefits from its healing powers. You see, what Jesus is saying to the Laodiceans, and something that they were very aware of because they saw it every day, how dissatisfying lukewarm water can be on a hot day, how dissatisfying lukewarm water can be when your body craves heat and when it needs to go into a hot bath. He says, you are neither, your faith is neither refreshingly cold or in a healing way hot. It's just lukewarm. It does nothing for you. See, when we push Jesus to the outside because of our mindset, of what we experience, or our fear responses, our worries, whatever it may be to the challenges that we face, our faith easily becomes neither hot nor cold. See, in verse 17, Jesus begins to point out, so how did the Laodiceans come to be this way? What caused their faith to suddenly become lukewarm? Or it, be, it began because they began to give in to the values of their, of their city. Look at verse 17. You say, I am rich, I've acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, Pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. See, what Jesus was mentioning is in their own mindset, they kept saying, we're rich, we're comfortable, we have everything that we need, right? And he's saying that very mindset, that very value that you've gained from your own city, where you have enough wealth to purchase things for yourself, you have enough comforts around you to provide all of your needs, that has subtly worked its way in into your thinking and into your heart where you don't need God anymore, where you push Him to the outside because on the inside, it's comfort. On the inside, is self-preservation. On the inside is I work for everything that I gain for myself. See, the Laodiceans, they were known for three things. The first thing was they had banks, and their banks had surpluses in them. And so even when a time when a big earthquake hit, and it leveled the city of Philadelphia and Laodicea as well, Philadelphia needed help to rebuild their city, but not Laodicea. Rome offered to give them money to help them rebuild, but Laodicea said, no, we have surpluses in our banks. We can do it ourselves. Aren't we good? They were also known for their incredible medical schools. So in their medical schools, they actually were a city that created salve for the eyes. And this salve for the eyes was believed to help heal weak eyes or failing eyes. And their medical system was well known. And so for the Laodiceans, they felt like, hey, we have healing waters. Uh, we have healing people around us. Why do we need healing waters like hot springs? The third thing that they were known for was their clothing industry. They were known to not just make clothing out of wool, but they learned and they, they perfected this technique to make the wool glossy. So it looked like silk when they created their material. They were actually the best dressed of all of the seven churches or all of the seven cities. So in their mindset, they really believed that their own hard work and their own efforts, their own resources could determine 
the quality of the outcome of their life. But look how Jesus responds to them. The three greatest comforts that they have, their riches, their medical system, and their clothing. Look what he says. To them, he says, you feel, you think that you have all this comfort in these things. You think that you're okay. But then Jesus says, but I want you to know you are really poor. You say that you are rich, but there's a poorness to your spirit. There's a poorness in your soul, and you know it. And you're just trying to satisfy these intangible things with tangible resources around you. He says, stop pretending that you are rich because you have all of these physical resources. Because deep inside, they're just superficial things that you are using to cover up the poorness of spirit that you feel inside. He also calls them blind, which was a huge kind of like remark an offense that they would hear because they were known for their solve to heal weak eyes. And he goes, you think you see, and you think you have the solution for sight. But Jesus says, but you are really blind. You can't see past the physical reality. You can't see the deeper spiritual things that are affecting how you feel, how you live inside. And the last thing he says, and as much as you feel like you're clothing yourself well, with this new technology that you have developed. He says you are really naked. You are clothing yourself with things that don't last. They will be eaten away. They will fade. Find your identity in a greater thing than just your appearance or what you put on. So then the question is, how do the people of Laodicea, how do followers of Jesus Christ who have similar problems, who are lukewarm in their faith, who have pushed Jesus out because we got comfortable with what we have. How do we reclaim our passion in Christ? Well, Jesus doesn't want our lives to be lived for superficial purposes that really don't fulfill our true significance. He doesn't want our prayers to center around riches, saying, give me more of this or give me more of that, he, when our soul is feeling poor. He doesn't want our, physical, uh, our, our focus to be on physical realities when we don't see the spiritual one. And he doesn't want us to focus on our appearances when those things are temporal. Jesus wants his church to reclaim our passion by reclaiming those three things, our soul, our sight, and our identity. So how do we reclaim those three things? Well, look at verse 18 to 19. He says this, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you might become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and solve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Jesus follows their language and their kind of cultural values by saying, you're investing in those things in your city, on those priorities. I want you to invest in me. He says, buy from me gold refined in the fire. And understand, in, in other words, he's saying, buy from me true riches that have been purified, 
that really show you what life is about, why your life has greater experience. He says, you can only find that by investing in me, by buying from me. That's the language. He's saying, rediscover what is worth investing in by developing your relationship, deepening your faith, your hold to me. Brothers and sisters, when we look at our life, how much do we invest in our relationship with Christ? Look at our everyday life, the routines that we have. He says, keep coming to me. Keep bringing these burdens to me and allowing me to reshape your perspective. He also says, get from me the true salve for your eyes so that as we begin to do that and we invest in Christ and we invite Christ and we open that door and we let him in, what happens is he begins to change our perspective. He's the one that puts the salve on our eyes so that rather than always being overly influenced by some of the disappointments, frustrations, and challenges that we face in the world, he says, but look at this instead. This is your journey in life. It is with me. You know, there have been a couple of times where I've been in my car and I was frustrated. And I'd be like just getting so angry and my wife would be beside me and then suddenly she would just change the topic and just say, hey. And she'd bring up a topic that wasn't so dark, right? And it was something that I was interested in. Hey, Eddie, what do you think about this? And she would bring up this topic that I was interested in. And that would automatically change my perspective from just brewing in my anger about what happened in the car or this, you know, the traffic that is around me. And then I'd get excited about it about that. And it would change me so that even when other people would cut me off, I'm still so passionate about what we're talking about and my perspective is reoriented that those things take that little space in my life. It takes its proper perspective in my life where it doesn't become such a big thing anymore. See, brothers and sisters, that's what Jesus does. He puts solve on our eyes to see a different reality to live for. So as we buy into him, we begin to respond to Jesus' rebuke and discipline that he mentions in verse 19. So what does the rebuke and discipline, well, when just like my wife, when she says to me, hey, let's change the topic, let's talk about this, it's rebuking my current attitude. Right? or my current perspective. And the repentance is now changing from that point of view to a different one. And he says, Jesus disciplines us because he loves us. He rebukes our way of thinking because it is wrong and is harmful for us. He says, don't shrug him off. Don't push him out and shut the door. He says, Jesus will come knocking. And that's the moment where we're called to repent. That's the rebuke that we get saying, hey, you pushed me out again. Let me come back in and restore your perspective. So just like any investor, what guarantees Jesus' offer? Why would we invest in this? Well, Jesus gives them three reasons that we see at the very beginning in verse 14. Look what he says. He says, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. We can trust Jesus to do this for us, because number one, he says, I am the amen. In other words, it means let it be or so be it. It's a way of acknowledging what is valid and binding. Jesus says, my words, my life, everything that I share with you is valid and it's binding. 
In other words, it's the most real thing that you will ever experience in your life. I am the amen. These are the words of the amen. This is why you can bank on me. He is utterly trustworthy. We can establish our foundation in him. The second way he introduces himself, he says, I am the faithful and true witness. He introduces himself like that in Revelation 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 5. He says he introduces himself as the faithful witness. And near the end of Revelation in chapter 19, verse 11, John again says, I saw a white horse and the one sitting on it was called faithful and true. From the beginning of Revelation to the end of Revelation, what Jesus is mentioning is, I am the faithful witness. I'm the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. I'm consistent throughout all, all your ups and downs that you go through. I'm the faithful and true witness. From beginning to the end. And then here, lastly, Jesus says, and I am the ruler of God's creation. Now, we don't really understand the significance behind the word ruler unless we look at the Greek. Again, the word here for ruler is RK. And RK is a Greek word that also means beginning. But this beginning, when he says, I am the RK of creation, I am the ruler of creation, that beginning word does not mean in sequence. It doesn't mean this comes first and this comes second. It's not talking about that. He's talking about RK as source. Or, I am the archetype. He is the source of all things. See, Jesus is the archetype, the source, the first principle, the moving cause of all of creation, the moving cause of our life, the moving cause of our existence. Not just humanity, but everything. Every part of our life. Everything that is created has a stamp of Jesus, has the archetype of Jesus on it. The personality way of Jesus is not only recorded in scripture, but it's also imprinted in our nerves. It's imprinted in our blood. It's imprinted in our tissues, our organs, and everything microscopic into our DNA and into the existence of our galaxies. He says this is the archetype. He is the first fruit of all things. This is why perhaps the New Testament says we are predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. We are predestined because everything in our archetype is based on Christ. From the smallest cell that we have, it's based on Christ. That's why we're predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. See, every part of our body, every part of our being, it yearns for it's desiring to become more like Christ. And that's where the frustrations come out when we see different things that happen around us that's not as it should be. And instead of focusing on that by our own strength, our own riches, our own perspective, Jesus, as we push him out because our own perspective holds greater weight, Jesus keeps knocking on the door and saying, you pushed me out again. You're trying to control things by your own strength and your own mind and your own desires again. He keeps knocking and he says, let me in. I'm your archetype. I'm the one that directs you. Follow my lead. Brothers and sisters, he is our goal toward which all of our cell, all of our beings strive towards. And when we disconnect from him, when we push him out, we become frustrated. We allow the burdens of this world, the cares of this world, to throw us off track. 
to make us focus on other things. And we become lukewarm in our faith in the way that we live. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is our amen. He wants us to experience a faith life that is filled with refreshingly cold moments and healing hot moments. Not nauseating, lukewarm ones. May we learn how to open that door let him in every time we try to push him out. And like Christ, take his place in our life. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I thank you so much for blessing us with this morning in your word to be reminded you are our archetype. Help us, Father, Lord, to listen to when you knock to let you in rather than pushing you out because we would rather address the intensity of our emotion, the intensity of our anger, the intensity of the frustrations that we feel. May those things not lead our perspective, but may we stop, repent, receive your rebuke, open the door and let you back in so that you can restore us, you can refine us, you can heal us, you can reorient us back to you. Thank you, Father. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you both now and forever. Amen.